I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 17th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. On today's episode, I hope to get into a deep dive of one of the most iconic golfers in the history of the game. Prior to the rise of Jack Nicklaus, Bobby Jones set the bar for golfing excellence. From 1923 to 1930, Bobby Jones won 13 major championships and did so without ever taking a prize check. He is one of the few men to receive not one, but two ticker tape parades and the only sportsman to do so. For those who don't know him for his golfing achievements, you surely know him as the founder of Augusta National and what would become the Masters Tournament. The Society of Golf Historians presents The Story of Bobby Jones, like you have never heard it before. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Bomb Jones IV to the 17th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Dr. Bob Jones IV is a clinical sports psychologist at the Behavioral Institute of Atlanta. He is the grandson of Bobby Jones. He is an avid golfer and member of the Atlantic Athletic Club, Highlands Country Club, and Sage Valley. Dr. Bob, I want to thank you for joining our show today. Connor, it is so great to be with you. I, I cannot believe that uh, you, you actually, I, I guess your standards must have really gotten a little bit lower inviting me to be on, but I'll tell you what, we're going to run with it. The check, right? check's in the mail. The check's right, in the mail. very good. <laughs> well, let, let's kick much. it right off. Uh, I thought I'd start with uh, some things about the family and your grandfather. So I thought I'd start off real yeah. easy with, uh, um, I thought we could start maybe with maybe your favorite memory you have of your grandfather. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny. My grandfather was uh, an invalid all of my life. He suffered with a terrible spinal disease called syringomyelia. So a lot of the memories that were very common that most people would have with their grandfather about going fishing or playing golf or going to ball games. That wasn't a part of my, my experience with him because uh, by the time I knew him, he had very limited use of his arms or hands and certainly no use of his legs. Um, and yet, I have some very wonderful, if unusual, memories of him. I used to, uh, I used to help him uh, get to and from work, and what I would do is he would get dressed, his... Uh, his uh, I guess Butler, for lack of a better term, sure. Hoyt, would get him dressed, and then they'd get him in his wheelchair, and I would wheel him over to the elevator on the second floor of their home, and then hit the button to send him down, and I would run downstairs and wait, and then wheel him out to the car where Hoyt could get him in the car, and I would help Hoyt put the wheelchair in the trunk. Uh, when he would come home, we'd repeat the same procedure, and then uh, when I, my grandmother used to sit in a very stiff back Chippendale chair next to my grandfather in the evening. And the only time she ever gave that chair up was for me, and I would sit down there. 
And when Bub needed, we called him Bub, whenever he would need a cigarette, I'd put it in his holder and put the cigarette in his mouth and I would light it for him. And he would smoke it. And, of course, I had the attention span of a flea. <laughs> so every now and then, you know, I'd forget. Uh, I'd forget that I'd done that. And all of a sudden I'd hear this, uh, uh, and I would turn and, and Bub would be sitting there with that cigarette holder and the ash would be about two inches Oh, long. no. Oh, no. And, and his jaw would be clenched, and I'd take it out. I was like, he'd go, oh, and I'd say, oh, Bub, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He'd be, oh, no, 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 that's all right, son. You don't you don't worry about that at all. And, you know, that was fine. Yeah. Uh, the other memory I have was um, he used to have uh, several trophies that he wasn't much of a – I mean, he had trophies, but there were very few that really struck him kind of to the core. One of them was a replica of the um, – British Amateur Trophy that was sent to him by the Royal and Ancient in 1930. Another was a little cup that came from a four-hole, a six-hole tournament that he won when he was six years old. And the other was a platinum ball that was given to him by the Metropolitan Golf Writers Association that had four flags located in the places of where he won the Grand Slam. Oh, tournaments. wow. Yeah. And one day when he was out to work, I decided I was going to bring him a present. So I decided to take those flags out of the ball. <gasps> well, here's the thing about those flags. They were attached to a post in the center of the ball by wire that was wrapped around the post. Oh, no. So I really had to wrench these things out. And I was about three years old at the time. Oh, no. And I wrenched them all out, and I put them behind my back, and I walked up into the sanctum, which was a little sleeping porch that had been glassed in. That's where he spent most of his days when he was home. And I walked upstairs with my hands behind my back. My father and my mother were sitting there. My grandmother was sitting there. Bub was in his chair. And I said, Bub, I brought you a present. Uh, now, mind you, as I said, I'm only about three years old at this point, Connor. Yeah. And I said, I, well, you know, I, I brought you a present. He said, well, what is it, son? And I took my hands out from behind my back, and these wires are just wiggling with these oh. uh, attached to these four flags. <clears throat> my grandmother turned a shade of white that I have just never seen before <laughs> or since in my life. And my father got a look on his face that said that I had roughly 20 seconds left to live. Yeah. And my grandfather just sat there and he said, son, that was so thoughtful of you. Wow. That was really thoughtful. He said, now, I'll tell you what, though. Next time you want to give me a present, why don't you check with Nina first? But I cannot thank you enough for that. Oh, so those are some wow. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me ask. Let me ask you that question. Uh, a question that's, that you said that he had a trophy, a cup, when he was six years old. Was that the one against Alexa Sterling? Yes, that he held yes, so it was. dear. Uh, it was, yeah, it was. It's at the Atlanta Athletic Club. In fact, um, it was a, a six-hole match between my grandfather Alexa Sterling, Perry Adair, and Frank Metter. And the tournament was put together by Frank's mother, and they played. Six holes on the East Lake Golf Course. Bub said he felt so important because all of these matches on the golf course with all these adults were giving way to him. And uh, after they finished the six holes, uh, Mrs. Metter totaled up the card and determined that my grandfather had won the tournament. <laughs> and so he got this little cup. He said, by the time he was 27, he said, I must have 100 cups now. But to this day, this is the, this little cup is the only one that I had ever that I had ever slept with. Yeah. And the funniest part about it though is he was convinced and he actually wrote about this in Down the Fairway. 
But he was convinced that uh, Alexa Sterling actually won the tournament. Right. But that Mrs. Metter wouldn't give her the cup because she was a girl. Oh, no. And just to give you an idea as to how competitive he was, he knew that and he never gave it to her either. Oh, lovely. I I just think it's remarkable that after all of those years, after all of those tournaments won, that it's one of three. Still, I mean... The fact yeah. at that age, it's still one of three that he was holding on to. Yes. Speaks so much to it. I mean, yeah. I've heard the importance of that trophy, but I didn't know he had it all the way into his later years. Oh, yeah. He, uh, in fact, when he made an arrangement with the United States Golf Association to uh, send his medals to Golf House. Yeah. Uh, he only held back. Uh, he held back very few things. He held back. The, uh, the 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 first cup, he held back the Metropolitan Golf Writers Trophy. He held back uh, also the uh, uh, British the British amateur replica that he was sent. Yeah. Uh, but the other ones he he had a couple of like second and third place medals he said he held back too. But there was one championship medal that he won that he held back as well. And golf collectors kind of went nuts about this for years. Because nobody could uh, find it. They called it the missing medal. Right. And it was the 1927 Southern Open medal that he won at Eastlake. That was the year when in a practice round he shot like 63. 63. And I just posted an article on that on Twitter. I just had the actual article. They called it the perfect round. They did. Uh, Ob Keeler, I think, even wrote they wound up the mechanical man of Eastlake and sent him ticking with mathematical precision right. around the course. Right. And uh, anyway, nobody could find that medal, and that's always a kind of a funny thing because they must not have looked very hard because nobody ever asked me. Right. Because I've known where that is because my grandmother used to wear that medal. Really. Uh, decoratively. And as she got older, she passed that on to my mother. And when my mother passed away, it came to me. And whenever you see my wife Mimi at a golfing event, you'll probably see the missing medal around her neck. How fascinating is that? Yes. I did not know that story. Apparently few do. So the missing medal is no longer missing. Yeah. And it's a memory of the perfect round. Right in the practice round. Well, certainly when that was a now he shot the perfect round though in a practice round. Right, right. But bear in mind, he still, I believe, won the tournament shooting. Um, I can't remember. I think it was two eighty two. Yeah, that's a which, score. And remember, at the time, Eastlake was one of um, Eastlake was one of the longest golf courses in the country. At yes, that it was. Point. Yeah. And also at the time, if I'm not mistaken. It played at a par. I might have even played at a par seventy-three. Yeah, that's unreal. But unreal. I, don't, I don't recall that. I, yeah. I can't take that one to the bank. But that's. I'm pretty sure it was definitely played at seventy-two. So, so. from your perspective and and the stories you've heard, uh, what was your grandfather like as a person? I mean, just beyond you know, like how you remember him. How do your family members? How do how did they remember him? Or how are the stories they've told you? Well, I think, you know, from my perspective, I think the best thing I can say about my grandfather is that he was the same man in private as he was in public. That's a compliment. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it really was. I mean, first of all, yes, he was very bright. He spoke with such precision that 
uh, you could actually diagram his sentences that mm-hmm. he spoke if you wanted. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, it's funny. We say that, but I think there's been a tendency, um, especially since he died, since he has died, I think to make him almost a larger than life figure. Sure. And while I think that's a, I, I mean, I get it. I mean, look at all that he accomplished. Absolutely. And the ages in which he accomplished it. But, um, you know, this was a man who struggled with a lot of things in his life, just like everyone else did. Like, yeah. I, I'll give you an example of that. Bub, um, Bub was a very, very kind man. But he wasn't much uh, for small talk. Right. And in fact, he could cut it off very, very quickly. Uh, one time, my sister walked into the room and she said, and, you know, the living room, Bub's there in his wheelchair. And she said to him, well, Bub, how are you doing? And he said, well, just look at me. How the hell do you? <laughs> That's a great answer. And and he was not smiling when yeah. he said it. And she, and she was sort of shocked. And he said, he said, it's all right. He said, I, I'm doing, I, I mean, I'm doing as well as I can be. He said, but let's just really cut to the chase on this. Right. And so, I mean, it could be very direct. Yeah. He also had a very incisive kind of sense of humor. There was a time, um, uh, I guess this would have been in the 1950s or so, when he could still get out. He used to love to go fishing and he would go, uh, he would go spend, uh, easily would spend hours upon hours on a boat with his, his cousin and very dear friend, Charlie Elliott. Uh, Charlie Elliott for years had been the editor of Field and Stream. Mm-hmm. And Charlie had a Boston Whaler made for Bub because Boston Whalers cannot capsize. And he put the chair in the front so that Bub could uh, could swivel in about 270 degrees. He had a space where Bub could keep his fishing pole and another space uh, on the side where he could keep a bottle of Coca-Cola. As Charlie Yates used to call it, the great elixir of Atlanta. Right. And what happened, there would be a deckhand at the dock east of Atlanta around Covington. And the deckhand, would his job was basically to pick my grandfather up and strap him into the chair on the boat and, um, and send them out fishing. And he did this time and time again. And after doing this about 10 or 15 times, this man turned to my grandfather and he said, Mr. Bob, do you mind if I ask you a question? And Bub said, well, no, what is it? I mean, the guy's holding him like a baby. What's he going to say? Yeah. He said, no, I don't mind at all. What is it? And he said, well, Mr. Bob, he said, I just couldn't help but wondering how a crippled up old man like you won all them golf tournaments. <laughs> and my grandfather just looked up at him and said, well, it wasn't easy. Yeah. Love and that it. was it. Quick, quick and to the point, right? So, I mean, Yeah. And, and and Bub was very much like that. He, he valued the English language. I, I don't know of any athlete, the, uh, I don't know of any athlete of any generation that used English with the precision that Bub did. Of course, I also don't know too many athletes that earned uh, two bachelor's degrees and dropped Absolutely. out of law school after a year and a half because he passed the bar. Yeah. Um, but he was extraordinarily precise in how he used his words. And um, he, so and he, you, would some, you say he, yeah. he didn't like to waste words like he didn't like to waste strokes? A man of perfection, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Yes. The only thing about that was he would throw strokes away occasionally. And clubs so, sometimes. 
and clubs. <laughs> yes, well, he did. He is. He was known for his one comment. He said, "You know, he learned not to throw clubs uh, when he was playing in tournaments." So he said, "But sometimes." He said he found that when he would be at home playing with friends and he didn't have to be on his company manners, he just found that there were certain emotions that just could not be withstood with a golf club in your hand. <laughs> One of the great quotes, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Let me. Okay. And, and I, I think that, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I was going to go in. I have a, a it kind of leads into this, but I have a, a viewer question I was going to ask you from Jim Deeks. Sure. Um, and it kind of okay. goes into uh, playing golf and then family. Uh, so the question goes, uh, I've heard some professional athletes say that they don't encourage their kids to play the same sport due to the pressure of living up to the level of a legend. Um, and I know your father was an accomplished golfer, a- amateur golfer. Was he encouraged to play by Bub? <laughs> no. In fact, Bub absolutely did not want him to play golf. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and, and, that, and dad just, just, dad got the bug. Yeah. Dad got the bug. And uh, finally, Bub decided that he knew what he was going to do to discourage my father from playing golf. Stuart Maiden had just been hired at Peachtree to be the first professional at Peachtree while it was under construction. Actually, Stuart, by that time, was dying of cancer, maybe cirrhosis. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bub was really kind and brought him back to Atlanta. And he said, Stuart, I want you to give young Bob a lesson, and I want it to be a lesson that he will never forget and that will totally discourage him from playing golf. So Stuart said, I got it. No problem. <laughs> and he called up. And so my da- and Bub said to my dad, he said, son, he said, I've, got, I've arranged for you to go out to Peachtree while it's under construction. You're going to get a lesson from Stuart Maiden. And dad was like, all right, let's go for it. And uh, so he shows up at Peachtree at like 8 o'clock in the morning. Stewart is sitting out there almost like Tommy Armour under his umbrella. The umbrella, right. And he's got, yeah, and he's got and he's, he's and he's got this humongously big bucket of balls uh, out on the practice tee. And uh and and he has a bucket of something liquid to his left. And my father starts hitting golf balls. And uh and he keeps hitting and hitting and finally at about 12 noon he puts his club down and starts walking back to the clubhouse. And Stuart's just sitting there. Right. And he said, uh, he said, lad, where are you going? And my father said, well, uh, Stuart, I'm going to lunch. And Stuart said, I don't take lunch. Get back here and keep hitting. <laughs> so dad goes back and he picks up his club and he starts hitting. About 2.30, my father's hands are just about raw. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And he puts the club down. He turns to Stuart, shows him his hands. says, Stuart. I got to quit. I can't keep hitting balls. Stuart said, come over here. And dad goes over there and Stuart looks at him. He goes, okay, stick him in the bucket. And so oh. dad sticks his hands in the bucket and it's a bucket of brine. Oh, oh. And so he takes him out of the, out of the brine. The bleeding of course is stopped. He said, well, what do I do now? And Stuart said, keep hitting. Finally at five o'clock, wow. Stuart says, okay, lad, you're done for the day. And that was that. But here was the funny thing that Bub did not count on. Stuart was incapable of not teaching. Oh. He had to teach. So just having Dad stand there and hit balls, he was constantly saying just little simple things to change and do. And as a result, the next year, my father won the city amateur. (laughs) 
here in Atlanta. And then I think that year or the year after qualified for um, the National Amateur. And uh, eventually qualified for three National Amateurs. Yeah. By the time he played in the second one in 1959, um, he and my grandfather had kind of come to a meeting of the minds on the fact that dad was going to play golf and he was going to play amateur golf, but he would not turn pro. Right. And uh, anyway, uh, 1959, though, they just both figured the way he was playing that he should be able to make the quarterfinals of the U.S. Amateur. Back then, if you made the quarters of the U.S. Amateur, you got an invitation to the Masters. And they just, and and Bub said, I think that's great, son. I think he would, dad would come down to Atlanta for a couple weeks at a time and really work on his game. And Bub was even going to fly out to watch him play. The tournament was played at the Broadmoor that year. Right. And uh, they finally got to the point uh, where they were pretty convinced that it was going to be very – dad was not going to have any problem at all getting to the um, getting to the uh, a, the quarterfinals. And, um, I mean, the only thing could happen would be something crazy like, you know, drawing Jack Nicholas in the first right, round. Right, right. And what are the odds? I mean, it's one out of 164, so 128. Yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, right? Right. Right. But if you do draw Jack Nicholas in the first round, the odds shoot to one to one. <laughs> right. And that's exactly that's exactly what happened with my dad. Oh, terrible and circumstance. The way yeah. he found out is he called up, he called my grandfather and he said, Dad, he said, I'm looking forward to seeing you still coming out. And Bub said, uh, Bub said, son, he said, have you seen the pairings? And dad said, no, no, I haven't. And Bub said to him, he said, well, son, you drew Jack Nicholas in the first round. And uh, I, I, I just don't see the point of flying all that way out there just to watch you play 12 holes. <laughs> oh, 12 holes. Ouch. Yes. Ouch. And, yeah. And, and oh. in fact, Jack beat my father seven and six. Wow. How about and that? It ended on the 12th hole. How about and that? I said, I said to dad, I said, dad, at what point did you know that, that you were in trouble? He said, well, let me tell you. He said, I got on the first tee of the Broadmoor. And he said, uh, I took my driver out and I hit a nice little cut fade um, and I hit about 265 yards to the middle of the fairway. He said, and then Jack got up and took a three wood. And he said, son, when Jack's ball went over mine, it was still going up. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he said, you can't spot somebody seven yards. Yeah. He said, you know, he said. And, and, you know, and this is something that we forget in this day and age. We forget how incredibly stinking long Jack Nicholas was. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, and matter and, of fact, I'll, I, just a, a quid on this. This is from actually Twitter. Um, Jack Nick, someone quoted Jack Nicholas saying that back in his day, uh, t- only twenty percent of the golf was determined by distance. And my reply was, "Bear in mind that's coming from Jack Nicholas that won eighteen majors." <laughs> yes. I mean, yes it's easy exactly. to discount it when you're hitting it you know 50 yards past everybody the point of fact is and i just read an article about this out of uh golf australia this just this morning i think i posted it on my facebook page um and it was by jeff ogilvy and one of the things points that he made is let's not let's not kid ourselves everybody talks about how the game is just so long nowadays 
at the upper levels of the game, it has always been yeah. long. Yeah. The, the top players in the game of golf always hit the ball much, much farther that, or had the potential to than their opponents. That yeah. was true with um, Bub. That was true even to a point with Gene Sarazen, um, Ben Hogan, Byron Nelson, slamming Sammy Sneed. Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer. I mean, you go back to young Tom Morris. Absolutely. Harry Varden for his day was a phenomenally long hitter. Yeah. And he played in braces. I mean, yeah. suspenders. Yeah. And a full jacket. And a full jacket. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I actually, I, I, I tell people this all the time when they talk about distance, I say, you know what, go read down the fairway. And there's a couple scenarios where Bob's talking about, how far he hit the ball. And there's one circumstance, and I'm not going to get the yardage right, but I, I believe it was like th- a 325-yard carry, he quotes, on the carry. Like he yes. had the ability with hickory-shafted clubs, now it was a small, heavy ball, to hit prodigious drives. That would... Well, think about this. He, um, If you also looking down the fairway, uh, read his description of the 1919, um, I can't remember if it was the, I think it was the Amateur. Yeah, it was the 1919 Amateur that was played at Oakmont. I believe it was at Oakmont. Yeah, it was. It was. David Heron. Yep. David Heron was the eventual winner. Yes. And Davey Heron, Bub said that he was playing. I wish I could remember my Oakmont holes. I think it was the 12th hole, which is supposedly this unbelievably long par five. Yes. And Bub said he had he had decided that the thing he could do that would break Davey's back (laughs) because Bub was like one down at the time was that Bub was going to go ahead and hit it in two. And he said he hit his tee shot out there just fine to where he had a brassy or a spoon into the green, a two or a three wood into the green. Yeah. And uh, right when he was at the top of his backswing, someone on another fairway, a gallery guard on another fairway or a, a hundred yards up, took his megaphone to quiet the crowd and it startled my grandfather, and he topped the shot into a bunker. And instead of being like one down, he ended up being two down and never yeah. recovered. Yeah. But the point the point to that is he was talking about hitting a hole in two that was generally considered to be unhittable in two. Yeah, I, I played Oakmont last week. I was not on that hole in two. That's with uh, <laughs> you know modern equipment. I'm a fairly good driver of the ball. Uh, but yeah, that's yeah, insane. Let me yeah. let me ask yeah. you this. So sure. your name is Bob Jones the 4th. Uh Correct. can you share what it means what that name means to you and did growing up the 4th create any pressure to you for you to live up to the name and I guess I'd ask the same question for your father. I think is I think the pressure well first of all let, let me take those in order. You bet. Uh, for me um for me, in my earlier years especially, it was an incredibly difficult name to live up to. Sure. Um, it had been made very, very clear to me by my family the expectations that come from having the name of, of Robert Tyre Jones. And, uh, and it was very hard. And I did not always bear it well in my younger years. And I ran from it to a large extent for much of my younger years. As I've gotten older, I've come to see it as, um, in fact, one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given to me. Um, it has allowed me to meet people 
that I would never have had the opportunity to meet. It has allowed me to be in places that I otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to be, all while being able to share what this very human but very wonderful man was able to do in the face of almost tremendous adversity in his life. So as I've gotten older, it's certainly become uh, much more, it has become an incredible blessing to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, that's why I, I try not to uh, ever turn down the opportunity to do, uh, uh, to, do any, uh, to do interviews about him. Try not to, unless my schedule just doesn't sure, allow it. Sure, sure. Uh, if I'm asked to write something, I will do it. Um, I've had to, in terms of public speaking, I've had to change that a little bit, and I've had to start doing fees just because it. I, I mean, that's Travel. time I'm out. Yeah, of absolutely. And, I, yeah, and your practice, also. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I try never to turn down opportunities to uh, to do any of that because it's an important message. Um, it, it's it's an it's an especially important message, I think, now because. Um, I think that Bub will always teach us about excellence. Um, he teaches us about an overall sense of excellence that I just don't know that we see that much in this world anymore. Yeah. And uh, so, well, and even that prior- priorities, good. right? Oh, he did. I mean, he put his family first is the ultimate decision he made, which is uh, perhaps um, our loss as fans, but uh, his gain to the family. Well, he did. He used to always say that he had three priorities in life. The first was his family. The second was his law practice. And the third uh, was golf. But it was only as a game. It was never to be an end in and of itself. Um, You know, a lot of people, it's very funny. uh, A lot of people say, well, he never turned pro because there was no money in it at the time. You know, Walter Hagen said, Uh, well, that's true. But Walter Hagen said, if Bob Jones had decided to be pro, there would have been money in it. Oh, that's for sure. He, I, I mean, I, I truly believe that. If Bob Jones went pro, yeah. it would have been, I mean, hate to use a modern reference, but like the Tiger influence of the amount of money that would have been raised. And by the way, Hagen made money out of it. Oh, sure. From touring. I'm sure he did, quite a bit. Yeah. But um, what Walter used to say, he didn't care if he actually was a millionaire. He just wanted to be able to live like Live one. like one, right. It's perfect. Yeah. But But you know, it's funny. Here's the thing. I think... If Bub had done that, I'm not so sure we would be talking today. You, you think? Yeah. Because, I mean, I think part of what is so amazing about Bub is that he did play golf for the love of the game. Absolutely. And then when he did make money off of it, it was to make a contribution to the game. To teach. Like golf yeah. clubs that were frequency matched. And, mm-hmm. Uh, made the game easier for the average player and instructional films and books. Um, I think Bub did. And then I think the other part of his story that was so compelling, and I think this has as much to do with why we remember him to this day as anything he did on the golf course, and that was how he dealt with his syringomyelia. Yeah. I think that made a huge difference in... uh, in, that makes a huge difference in the Bob Jones story. I totally agree. Um, let me yeah. let me ask you a question that goes. Maybe you've never had this question before. Maybe you have. There's a series of questions uh, that kind of bring your professional thoughts into this. So my first mm-hmm. question: uh, 
Bob Jones, the Dixie Wiz kid, right, uh, was f- yeah. famous. I mean, he's one of the the first American, you know, breakthrough teens from a fame standpoint. From a sports mm-hmm. psychologist standpoint, how do you think that might have affected him? And were the burdens too much? Were the expectations too much for him to carry on his own? Do you think that played a role, essentially, in the anxiety that he got from tournament golf? No, I think the anxiety he got from tournament golf just came about from his naturally high-strung temperament. Okay. Uh, He was very high-strung man. I don't know, as far as the fame goes, he thought it was all something of a lark in his early years. And I think that um, I think that one of the things that was particularly beneficial, he, you know, he played in the 1916 United States Amateur, where he eventually lost, I believe, in the third round to Robert Gardner. Gardner, yeah. And uh, then, uh, for him, I think, he had something very, very fortuitous happen. It wasn't fortuitous to the rest of the world, but for him as a golfer, I think it was, and that was World War One. And after World War one break broke out, he traveled the country with Perry Adair and Alexa Sterling and Elaine Rosenthal, and they traveled around the country raising money for uh, the Red Cross, playing the Red Cross matches in 1917 and 1918. And what that really did was that gave him the opportunity to get used to what did it really feel like to play in front of big crowds. Right. And so by the time the war ended and tournament golf resumed in 1919, he had gained a level of maturity um, that uh, he had not had uh, prior to it, simply because he'd had the experience of having thousands of people watch him play without a championship riding on the line. And so I think that was one thing. The other thing was, over time, Bub carried it within himself. He was a fiercely competitive man. And as I said, he was also very high strung Mm -hmm. and he carried around in him a certain amount of rage, Um, some of it being born by being frustrated with his health when he was five, up to five years old. And his mother really kept him under some pretty tight wraps for those five years. Granny was tough about that. Yeah. And I think there was two. And also like a lot of only children. I think Bub was always kind of, in other ways, used to kind of getting his way. And when things didn't work out his way, he took that very badly. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of his temper came from. But he got very smart about it eventually. Unfortunately, it took a a terrible event to do it. He was playing, I believe, in the 22 Open, which I think was at Skokie. And uh, not playing particularly well. Um, Although I think he finished second in that tournament. Yeah, to Gene Sarazen. Gene Sarazen. Yep. Yeah, on the train back, Sarazen turned to him and said, "Oh yeah, with the trophy. Hey, Bob, I bet you, uh, bet you want to play this for play me for this again, don't you?" And Bob said, "No, Gene, you want it fair and square. That's fine." Yeah. They were very competitive people. Yeah, Gene was yeah needling him. Meanwhile, though, during that tournament, Bob threw a club that bounced off the ground and hit a lady in the shin and broke her shin open. Yeah. And she had to go get stitches. And. that was the first time it ever occurred to Bub that losing his temper could actually hurt somebody else. Yeah. He figured it was just him. Um, and that really shook him up. When he got back to Atlanta, he got shaken up by something else. And that was a letter from George Herbert Walker, the president of the United States Golf Association, who informed him that unless and until he could learn to control his temper, 
um, his applications for USGA events would not be accepted. I'd love to have a copy of that letter. No kidding. Um, but uh, I'm sure the USGA does. But uh, actually, maybe I wouldn't. But he decided, yeah. and this is kind of interesting. He decided at that point when he was in competition that nobody would ever be able to tell how he stood to par or how he was playing on a given hole by his external demeanor. Now, that had a really interesting psychological effect. He didn't realize that this is what he was doing. Right. But everybody has an optimal zone in which they function, Mm -hmm. where they function best. All right? You get too much above it, your performance suffers. You get too much below it, and your performance suffers. But there's there's an area in the middle where you can function at your best level. Now, Bub tended to shoot above it. And by doing what he did, he basically learned how to regulate his emotions to where he would stay, for the most part, in that middle zone. Now, every now and then, he would scoot down below it. And that's why you see these things where in tournaments where he would get out there and he'd get like a four or five shot lead. And then the next thing you know, he'd make double bogey, double bogey, bogey. Right. And then all of a sudden, that would kick him back up into this optimal range of functioning. And, you know, he didn't realize it, but he was light years ahead of his time um, in terms of figuring out how to get into this area where he could play at his dead level best. Yeah. Um, You know, Bub in many ways was a sports psychologist long before uh, any of us, well, long before I was ever even conceived. And... um, you know, probably he wrote more in his books about mental process in golf. Um, I mean, the only other person I could think of that wrote that much about mental process in golf was, oh, I got, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but he wrote the book about better golf without practice, I think was that. Okay. Or something. Yeah. But um, Bob Rotella would have been the next person to sure. write as much as Bob had written. And, and Bub, but Bub learned it in, uh, Bub didn't learn it in the laboratory. Bub learned it in the uh, crucible of experience. See, I, I've always kind of put some of the help to um, OB Keeler, right? I, I've always thought, and in his younger years, specifically in leveling oh. Jones, that he was kind of, I, I've always said that he's kind of golf's first de facto go, uh, sports psychologist. You know what I he mean? He was in a way. Just getting him to say, listen, you know, you're the best in the world as soon as you realize it. You'll win everything. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and Keeler was that way. Keeler formed Bub in a lot of different ways. You know, um, Keeler was, um, you know, Bub was, people forget how young Bub was when he started playing at championships. And when Keeler would accompany him around the country, around the world, um, he had a tremendous influence on forming Bub. And Keeler, was a um, for Keeler issues of fairness were very very important. Um, in fact, I'll give you an example. Um, when Bub was a boy, oh boy, now now I'm going to draw blanks on this, but I won't draw a blank on one name. There was a yep. Mary Fagan. There was a young girl named Mary Fagan who worked in a pencil factory uh, who was murdered, and. Um, 
a Jewish man named Leo Frank was arrested for the crime and uh, uh, a, a bunch of people broke into the jail, took Leo Frank out and uh, lynched him. Oh. And the only person at the time who really wrote very profound uh, commentary about what had happened was O.B. Keeler. Right. And this was year. This is several years before Bub met him. Um, but I think you know, uh, and Keeler was Keeler had a very. Um, I mean, he wasn't what we would call by today's standards a progressive. Right. But Keeler would have been very much somebody that uh, fairness would have played very, very much into uh, O.B.'s matrix. Yeah. And then you combine that with. Um, my great grandfather, who was also a lawyer, uh, I say also because my grandfather became one. Sure. Um, matters of equity are very important to lawyers. And that went a long way, I think, into forming Bub's character without even realizing that that's what he was doing. So, yeah, I think Keeler had a very deep effect on yeah. him in many ways. They were a perfect pairing, weren't they? I mean, you just basically they had were. two like minds, two scholars. That both valued well, education although and Keeler, reading. Although Keeler, you know, Keeler also had a very wicked sense of humor himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, Keeler was a very typical sports writer of the time. Um, he was known to take more than three fingers of whiskey on occasion. He was known sometimes to not necessarily, um, well, he enjoyed the company of women sometimes that were not his wife. <laughs> Gotcha. And sometimes he would do those together. And there was one occasion uh, where he woke up the next morning with the lady next to him. And she said, and he was getting ready to leave. And she said to him, Ob, you promised you would write me a poem. And Ob said, oh, so I did. And he sat down at his typewriter and he clacked out. Uh, he, he said, my typewriter's most ambitious to ensure your lasting fame but the liquor we had was vicious, and I cannot recall your name. Oh, Ob, <laughs> Ob, Ob. That is oh, that is Ob. I'm sure that did not uh, go too well for him. No, I, I think he gave that one to her on the fly. But uh... yeah, crazy. Well, let me move yes. into uh, another. Yeah. You know, we talked about this briefly before we got on here. Um, sure. I, Charles Barkley over a decade ago called your grandfather a racist. More race yes. recently, Barry Smart in his book, Sports Star, states that Jones, quote, Jones was known a known for being a racist. This is just one narrative that's kind of out there. And I'm just wondering, well, now, how who, would you respond? Who, yeah, was go the, ahead. who was the second person? Barry Smart. And the book okay. was called now, Sports Star. It was actually, the quote was, now, Jones was known for being a racist, quote. Yeah. Okay, now I'm not asking this to be cute. But no, that's who right. Is Barry, who, who is Barry Smart? I don't know Barry Smart. I don't. I oh, have okay. the book. All I right. just I read the book once, and I I made a notation of that because I it was I think the first time I read that in print. Well, you know we've we've kind of had these questions get thrown at. Uh, you know, I remember when Charles Barkley made that statement, and uh, frankly, I was disappointed because I've often found. Every time I watch Charles Barkley, first of all, I always admired him as an athlete. Absolutely. And second, uh, second, I think in a lot of areas, I think his commentary on things is uh, usually very informed. 
But in this case, he obviously was just saying something that was off the top of his head. Yeah. Um, and had not done any research. Because if he had, he would have found out that my grandfather, as I said before, was a person for whom equity was very, very important. And he believed in treating all people, uh, all people with the same respect that, uh, you know, that he would wish to be treated uh, with. I'll give you a couple examples. That'd be great. Yeah. When he uh, came to New York to uh, when he came to New York after the uh, came back to New York after winning the um, British Open in 1930 and came down to Atlanta for the parade. Um, he invited his caddy to come up to the platform, his caddy at Eastlake, to come up to the platform and stand with him. Yeah. That did not go well with a lot of people in Atlanta, and they started, they started booing. And my grandfather put up his hand and stopped them. He said, no, no, no. He said, this man is like family to me. You, we're not going to do that. Yeah. I wouldn't be where I am today if it was not for him. Uh, his son is the one who told me that story. I, I didn't know that story. It's a fantastic story. Yes. Also, in, uh, I believe, the early 1960s, uh, there was going to be a U.S. Open qualifier that was going to be played at the Atlanta Athletic Club. And Charles Harrison had been play, paired with a man named George Johnson to play 36 holes in qualifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles was on the practice tee getting ready to play. And uh, all of a sudden, this African-American gentleman came up to the uh, starters, uh, uh, starters hut. And George Brett was there. And George was a very fine man. I mean, he was just and he said and George just looked at him and given the time that we were talking about, sure. he said, oh, the caddy barn is over here. And the guy said, well, I'm not uh, here as a caddy. I'm here to play in the tournament. And. Um, and he said, well, what is your name? And he said, well, my name is George Johnson. And so they went and they teed off and they played their 18 holes. And it came to at the end of the 18 holes, Charles turned to George and he said, George, there's a uh, uh, there's a buffet in the clubhouse for the contestants. Would you mm-hmm. like to join me? And Johnson said, well, I, I would love to, Charles. And they went into the clubhouse and I mean, it was like the old E.F. Hutton ads, you know, when E.F. Hutton talks, yeah. ding, people, people listen, yeah, everything just came to a stop. I mean, a dead stop right. in the clubhouse. And Charles said, well, George, come on over here. Here's the buffet. And, and gradually conversation picked up again. But there were a lot of members who um, really were upset about an African-American man entering the athletic club clubhouse at Eastlake. Right. And... Um, at one point, there was even some discussion about uh, about whether or not my grandfather, uh, wh- whether or not Charles should even have a membership. Mm-hmm. And um, Charles wrote and said, uh, Charles said, uh, I feel absolutely justified in what I did. And uh, I think he was a contestant and I think it was fine for him to be there. And I think Bob Jones would agree with me. And he called up my grandfather. He said, "Bob, do you mind if I uh, do you mind if I send that in my letter?" Yeah. And Bob said, "Absolutely, send that in your letter." Oh, that's great. He said the man was a contestant, and he is entitled to the privilege of what every contestant, uh, what every contestant enjoys. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you know, Bob 
you have to understand something about Bub. Bub was, I don't want to portray him as a saint because he probably was a man of his time in some ways. Sure. But when it came to people, Bub was a golfer by nature. It, the question is not what color is your skin. The question is, what did you shoot? Yeah. You know, when Charlie Sifford won the Masters, uh, won, won, excuse me, won a PGA Tour event, yeah. and normally would have gotten an invitation to the Masters, but the way the committee worked, uh, it didn't happen that way. And people forget, Bub was not involved in that committee. Right. Bub did rules, but Bub did not run the Masters tournament. That was Cliff Roberts. Uh, Charlie did not get an invitation, and Bub sent him a letter. Bub sent him a letter telling him how how pleased he was to see him win that tournament. I think it was the Los Angeles Open or something. Yeah. And uh, he said, Charlie, he said he hopes that in the future that uh, he hopes that in the future things can change around enough so that uh, at some point he can play in the Masters. And please know you have my every good wish. That's nice. And, And you have to understand at the time when Bub was going through all this, he was also going through a pretty agonizing disease. Yeah, that was right in the heart of it, right? Yes, it was. And yet, but for him, I, I think for I think for um, people to come out and make statements like that, whoever this person was that wrote the book, he probably only made the statement because Charles Barkley had said that. Sure, yeah. And, uh, you know, the problem is with, with, with Charles is that while he's incredibly entertaining, in this sense, I think the record shows that he was poorly informed. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, uh, Charles did not lose his membership at the Atlanta Athletic Club. And about <laughs> uh, 10 years later, 10 years later, the Atlanta Athletic Club uh, became the first club in Atlanta without fanfare, I might add. Right. To remove race, religion or sex from its membership. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. OK, yeah. so. We we just you touched on Augusta a little bit. I thought maybe we would jump into that. Um, sure. I personally am a huge fan of the Masters tournament. Uh, I believe Augusta National has done a lot of the game. What was that? It's hard not to be. Yeah, it's hard not to be. Right. I mean, it's oh, it's almost everybody's yeah. favorite tournament. I prefer the Open, but no knock on the on the on Augusta. Um, I'm going to go to one that uh, you know a lot of my listeners, uh, a lot of the people on Twitter. Uh, thanks to folks like Andy Johnson and Derek Duncan uh, have a huge interest in the history of architecture. And so okay. I just wanted to get your opinion. How much of Augusta National's design do you think we can attribute to your grandfather? So we obviously have Alistair McKenzie working with your grandfather. Originally, all, almost all of it. Yeah. Um, the um, McKenzie even said that he was basically along to help um, figure out issues like drainage, uh, where there might be conflicts in routing. Yeah. But he said the strategic, uh, the strategic design of Augusta National, even McKenzie said, was almost from first to last Bob Jones. Now, he said that, but let's also be real honest about something as well, and that is that Bub and McKenzie had a very, very strong friendship that mm-hmm. went back to 1926. And uh, Bub had had a tremendous fascination with the design philosophy of Alistair McKenzie to begin with. So even though Bub might have been responsible for the way Augusta National appeared, uh, in point of fact, 
he had been under Mackenzie's <laughs> he had been under Mackenzie's spell for a very long time. Sure. Yeah, I, I think to you to that point, uh, I would argue in, in the same direction you're arguing here is the mm-hmm. uh, Augusta National, unlike McKinsey's work prior, uh, had a lot of holes that paid homage to some of the best courses that Jones thought were his favorite. Um, and, well, at and, least in terms of shot value, yes. Yeah, or, or just outright um, strategic nature. So there were strategic natures of a Redan. Now, does it look like a Redan mm-hmm. so much today? Not so much. Uh, the course has yeah. changed over time. They had a home hole, right, where you yes. used to be able to run up the shot. Now we have bunkers, so you can't really play that shot anymore. Um, there were, and I think, the course, go ahead. Yeah, and the course is much softer, too. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. so, I, I mean, to that point, I think that speaks because you don't see any other designs from McKinsey where he played like or designed like Charles Blair McDonald, where he found ideal holes. <laughs> And what I love to tell people, what's really cool, one of my favorite things about Augusta is that um, much, much people, I, 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 how would I put this? I'd say a lot of people don't realize that the homage that, that Jones paid at Augusta is really the celebration of his career. If you look at the holes he pays homage to, oh, no many of them are from tournaments on courses that he won, and he celebrated those holes, which I, I, I always like that. I think that's. I think that is correct. I think that is correct. Um, you know, it, it's unfortunate in the sense uh, because, although I will say, I think they've done a very good job at trying to reclaim some of those original uh, playing values of the golf course. Yeah. Uh, I think lengthening five out a little bit, or a little bit, a lot, <laughs> a lot, uh, has, yeah, has been a big help in that because five used to always be a very interesting strategic course when the course would play hard and fast. Yeah. And that was, did you fly the ball back to the hole or did you let it hit and run up? And, um, and that, that doesn't exist anymore really. Um, and, and there've been, you know, and I think, I think when you look at like the old, the old way 13 used to play when people would be hitting a driver. And if you ended up at, 205 to 220 yards you're really going to start thinking about wow do i take a four or three wood here and really go for it so sure yeah but you know, when you can blast a drive over the trees and have a wedge well it's not as much of a challenge but um but yes i think uh yeah now now saying that i think there's also one other piece to bub's design and that is this i think if you really want to also see what bub's thoughts were as he matured, not to say that there's anything immature about Augusta National, <laughs> right. but I think that any, any student of my grandfather also, it's really worth their while to uh, really study Peachtree Golf Club in Atlanta, right. which he designed with Robert Trent Jones uh, many years after that, about 13 years after that. And you will see, I think, um, I think because he was less trying to make an homage, I think, I think that it becomes a much more mature example of what his thinking was at the time. From a design. I'll give you an example. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Augusta National, when it was originally designed, really favored the person who could move the ball right to left. And that was always something Bub really thought was the sign of a great golf course, because here's the thing. If you can control a draw... That takes a tremendous amount of talent and discipline. I mean, what's the old phrase, you know? Yeah. You can talk to a fade, but a hook won't listen. I struggle with that right now. 
Yes. So I concur. And but you but you go to Peachtree and and, and you go to Peachtree and you got to move that golf ball both ways. Yeah. You cannot just simply rely on one type of golf shot. And I think that reflects even after you know Trent uh, Trent and Bub did it together for that course, and then Bob Cup I think was involved in a redo of it. But Bob left those same shot values in it. Yeah. And so I think you get even a more mature understanding of what Bub's thinking in terms of golf courses were. That's great. Um, how about this question for you? Uh, Augusta National doesn't exist without two men, Bob Jones and Clifford Roberts. From an outsider's perspective, it appears their relationship deteriorated over time. What is like, what's your memory of that relationship? And what can you share about maybe how it changed over time? Well, I think that's right. I think it did deteriorate over time. Um, you know, I don't mean to, this is going to sound really petty, and I don't mean for oh, it. Oh, it's all right. But let's be real clear about something. You know, it wouldn't exist without two men, Bub and Cliff Roberts. These were two very, very strong-willed men. And there was a certain amount of conflict that was baked into the cake of their relationship from the very beginning. And as long as Bub's health was good and his, you know, and his abilities were strong, he could hold Cliff at bay right. in a lot of different ways. For example, after the course reopened and they needed some funding, Bub went up to the uh, First National City Bank of New York to meet with, oh, I can't remember the banker's name now, but they were going to get some funding to reopen the golf course. And uh, they, Bub and the banker negotiated the terms. And Bub said, no, I need to run all this by Cliff before we can sign off on it. Right. And the guy said, fine. And they brought in the portable phone, which means the cord with the phone with the 80-foot cord. You're right. I remember those. And they get Cliff on the phone. And Bub said, Cliff, I'm up here with Alan. And uh, here are what the terms are that he's given us. And Cliff went ballistic. And he started to go, why that no good son of a, you know, I just, and, and he's so loud, Bub had to hold the phone away from his ear. And finally, after a few minutes of that, Bub said, all right, Cliff, well, I'll tell him, I'll tell him, and I'll see you soon. You take care now. And they hung up. <laughs> well, banker looks over at Bub and he said, well, what did Cliff say? Well, everybody knew what Cliff said. The phone right. was two feet yeah. Bub's ear. You could hear what Cliff said. And Bub just looked back at him and said, Cliff said that'd be fine. <laughs> that's a now, great story, isn't that's it? That's a funny story, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, someone that is as strong-willed as Cliff, how funny do you think he thought that story? Oh, was? he did not like that story. <laughs> Nor like it told. No. And here's the thing. Bub, in a way, could do whatever he wanted to do. But once he started getting weaker, yeah. Cliff... Um, Cliff had chafed under that long enough, and that's when their relationship started to deteriorate. Probably its worst expression came in the fact that Bub always wanted my father I was gonna to bring succeed that up. him yeah. as, uh, as, as president of the club. Well, Cliff found a really good way to stop that, and that was he always told my grandfather that, uh, well, we don't have any outstanding shares of stock for membership. So you can't be a president of the club if you're not a member, right? Right. And finally, uh, after some machinations by an older member, uh, one of the founding members of the club, Cliff found a share of stock and dad became a member. And Cliff used to treat him terribly. He really? would bring my father up. He would bring my father up to his apartment and literally yell at him 
for like an hour at a time about why are you still here? Nobody wants wow. you. Wow. Wow. And by this time, Dad had been elected uh, vice president of the Board of Governors. And uh, finally, at one point, Cliff, I think, found the ideal solution to keep Dad from ever being president. Right. And that was he had Bub named president in perpetuity. Ah, uh, yeah. Cut the corner. And, yeah. Now, publicly, you know, publicly, our family's attitude toward that was, um, you know, it's a great honor and we're very pleased and we're very honored. Right. But I mean, deep down, that was not a, a happy moment in the Jones household. Yeah. And because he blocked. Uh, he just basically blocked everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, finally, at one point. My dad and my my grandfather used to talk quite a bit, and they used to talk in front of me. And um, they said, uh, you know, finally, my 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 father used to tell Bub. Bub would talk about, oh, I'm just, I just can't, uh, I just don't know. This is just terrible. And Dad said, don't, Bub, don't, Dad, don't worry about it. He said, I'll take care of it. Right. I'm only forty five. I'm only forty five years old. Cliff's a lot older than I am. I'm going to survive him. I will take care of it. What dad never counted on was that he was going to die almost two years to the day after right. his father. Right. And, um, you know, um, and for a long time, uh, the relationship between the Jones family and the club was very, very strained. And was that, the, I mean, was that, it was that just, you think that was, pre- I mean, was that because of how your dad was yes. treated and it just, Yes. Kind of rolled yeah. with that. Yeah, it, it was. And then finally, one of the things that happened was in 1976, uh, I went up to the Memorial Tournament. I was 19 years old. My mother and I flew up to the Memorial Tournament. And uh, Cliff was there. Yeah. And after all the ceremony, Cliff came and asked my mother if he could speak to her for just a minute. And she said, sure, for some reason, and I don't know why, but my mother was one of the few people in the world that Cliff Roberts was always kind of intimidated by. (laughs) Love it. And um, anyway, so he spoke to her for a minute and she came over and she spoke to me and she said, I need you to do something for me. I said, sure. What is it? Remember I'm 19 years old. Yeah. She said, Mr. Roberts would like to get a golf cart. He would like for you to ride around and show, show him the uh, golf course. And I looked at her and I said, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> Love a 19-year-old. Yeah. I didn't I didn't say kidding. Oh, really? Yeah. And she looked right at me with a look that now I see why Cliff got intimidated. Oh. She looked at me and she said, now you listen here. I don't have time to discuss this with you. This is important and you need to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I got a golf cart. And I helped Cliff up into the cart, and he and I went off and rode around the golf course. Because he would have been – was uh, he ill? He was ill at that time, was he not? He was very ill. He was yeah. very ill by the time. And we started talking. Nothing nothing profound or deep. Yeah. But I could – you know, it was one of those things where now looking back, I understand as a psychologist, he was trying to reach out in any way that he could. Yeah. Make and, amends. Um, as much as he could. Sure. And I remember we got one point out there. I think we were on the 12th hole at Muirfield Village, which is Jack's homage to the 12th at Augusta. Yeah. And uh, a couple of guys came in. One guy hit a ball in there about like six feet. And um, and I sat there and I said, 
Oh, Mr. Roberts, that was a good shot, wasn't it? He said, your grandfather could have done better than that, son. <gasps> Lovely, right? And I, I turned back and I looked at him and I said, yeah, he was pretty good. And he got what my friend and golf, my friend and golf writer Steve Eubanks always likes to call the thousand yard stare. Right. And he got the little tear in his eye and he just, uh, he just looked sort of straight out and he just went, Bob, he was the best that ever was. Oh, that's nice. And I said, yes, sir. And we didn't talk much after that. And I drove him back. We, we drove around, I guess, about an hour and a half. And I drove him back to the clubhouse. And we got on the plane to fly back to Nashville. And, uh, you know, it's a very funny thing. When I heard that Cliff had killed himself the next year. Yeah. If I had not had that experience at Muirfield Village, I would have been like, oh, Cliff died? Oh, yeah. Right. How, how'd the Braves do yesterday? Right, right. But because of that experience, it was uh, that was a very sad day. Yeah. And that was very his sad. that was probably the only way he could, you know, ha- have amends the with the family. Could, right? That was yes. Yes it was. And um uh, you know, it's funny. And, and 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 I'm very grateful that I had that experience because otherwise uh, my memory, you know, and, and, you know, you got to look at it from Cliff's perspective too. I mean, he was a pretty strong guy in his own way. Right. And he had to live and he had to actually make his success at Augusta national under the shadow of this very dominant, famous, I mean, famous legend beyond Tiger yeah. standards. Yeah, standards. absolutely. Um, athlete. How do you not get bitter about that over time? Right. Even after his passing. Yeah, he just internalized it. And in many ways, here's the thing. Remember, in many ways, Bub has become larger larger in death than he was in life. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, And Cliff then discovered something. You know, first, it's hard to compete with a legend. Then when the world is watching Bub suffer with syringomyelia, it's hard to compete with a saint. And then um, you can't compete with a ghost. Yeah. That's pretty profound. Yeah, I mean, you can't. That's an unwinnable scenario, isn't it? It absolutely is. And and in that sense, you know, for Cliff, who understood the world in terms of power uh, and power and possession, uh, then, you know having someone that basically just kind of just by their mere presence impinged on your sense of your own autonomy and power. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a massive thing. I mean, you know, it's very funny as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot more sympathetic to Clifford Roberts than I ever did uh, in my younger years. That's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm still not saying he's a, you know, was one of the greatest guys in the history of sports. Sure. But what I am saying is he was a very human man who, like my grandfather, in many ways, did accomplish some really great things. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, I remember one year, and you can tell you're getting old when a phrase like this comes out of your mouth. <laughs> uh, Mimi and I were at the Masters. I think it was like uh, probably – it was before Billy was chairman. I don't remember if Jack Stevens was chairman or Horde Harden. But we were on the property, and, and something happened. I forget what it was, but there was a, it was a detail kind of thing that just got missed. And I remember I turned to Mimi, and I said, 
boy, I can't believe that. That would never have happened when Cliff Roberts was alive. Oh, really? Yeah. Because he was he, that, He kept yeah. a notebook by his side. Uh, he kept his notebook by, a notebook by his side all the time in which he would write little suggestions down for the future. And when Cliff talks about suggestions, they aren't suggestions. <laughs> Demands, right? Yeah. Yes. Not even demands. These are just things that will be done. Will be done. Yeah, I get yes, that. They will. I know I'm lo- I'm missing you on time. I think we have like nine more minutes, and I have uh, I just have, about. Yeah, I have a couple more questions, and we may not get to sure. the listener questions. And for the listeners, I'm sorry. And what we'll try to do is maybe, obviously, we got to have uh, Doctor Bob on the show again, but maybe I can answer I'll some of glad. those questions. You know what? I'll be I'll be glad to do it anytime. Go That'd on. be great. And maybe if it's okay with you, if we don't get these in, maybe I can ask you. At some time, you can answer them at will, and I can put them out there for so people have them. Oh, I'd people... be honored. I'd, I'd be happy to do yeah, that. Yeah, I'd love to Absolutely. have people heard. But I, l- I like these last two questions because I think they lead into where we are today. Um, okay. How much of your grandfather exists at Augusta National today? That might be a tough one. Well, it is only because I'm not a member there, so I sure. don't really know. Um, but honestly, I would doubt very much um not and i don't mean this in a bad way no i get that i get that Uh, here's the reason why i say that he died in december of 1971 he had not been there since 1969 which means we are now at the point where we are 50 years wow that is amazing and since he had ever said and and actually since my dad died in 73 we are 46 years since any member of the Jones family has ever set foot on that property except for the Masters or, for me, an occasional round of golf. Yeah. Um, so there has been no impact of the Jones family on the life of that club for half a century. Oh, wow. And I didn't even think about that. For, 50 years. For that, for that reason alone, um, I think for people to say – that, you know, to talk about the influence of Bob Jones on the contemporary experience of the Masters Tournament in Augusta National is almost an indefensible position. Sure. But but that said, when you look at the golf course, even after all the modification that it has undergone since almost day one, the spirit of Bob Jones and how that tournament is played not necessarily run, but play right. it. Although, don't get me wrong, I think Fred Ridley is an outstanding chairman. Um, uh, I think the spirit of Bob Jones is still alive on that golf course. Because you can look at any hole there, and even though some of the holes have radically changed, sure. Dan Birdie did a great book on that. Uh, the spirit of the holes, I think, are still very much present. And... Um, I think to a large extent that is simply because, um, and it will always be because of Robert Tyre Jones Jr. So in the sense of the life of the club, probably very little. Even to a certain extent in the Masters Tournament, not all that much in terms of the trappings of the tournament. Right. But when you get down to the actual playing of the golf course, uh, Bob Jones is very much alive. So, so you'd say that in some regards, he would recognize the club that he founded and in others, maybe he would recognize the clubhouse and he would recognize the course. It would be a would be swing a that he was unfamiliar with. 
That is correct. Right? That's a good way to put it. Actually, right. the way he phrased it, a swing with which he plays a game with which I am not familiar. Right. And so that would be kind of in, in the same in the same um, yes. thought process. Let's see. I'll ask you one more question. Let's go to one uh, sure. listener question. I'm going to try to find a good one for you. All right. You know what? I like this one. Um, it's uh, Jim Deeks. I kind of added part of it to it. But uh, one of my right. favorite quotes of Bob Jones referring to his spinal disease that would eventually rob him of his mobility. Uh, I'll give you the quote, and then I'll go to his question. Uh, Someone asked him, how was he getting along? And he said, I will tell you privately, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse all the time, but don't fret. Remember, we all play the ball as it lies. And now let's never talk about this again. And the question comes from Jim Deeks. I just love that quote because he takes... He, he took the positivity of the game and, and the, the cards that he was given in the same light. And, and uh-huh. Jim's question was, um, how did the family deal with the debilitating disease? I mean, we know how, uh, how, how you know, Bob dealt with it, but how did the family deal with it? It was hard. Yeah. Uh, Jim, that's a great question. It's, it's hard. The statement was actually made to... Um, Oh, gosh, I think it was Al Laney, who was a writer for the uh, New York Herald Tribune, I believe. Um, you know, for many, many years, we expected Bub to die, uh, probably most of my life. There was always a uh, navy blue suit kept in a plastic bag in the closet, because we never knew when we would Oh, that's sad. Go. Yeah. And, you know, there would be times when Bub would have a heart attack. And, you know, on the one level, you always hope he gets better. And then on the other level, it's kind of like, well, maybe it'd be a blessing if he didn't. Right. Because of the pain. Finally, you know, he, it was difficult for him and for my grandmother. Um, my grandmother, you know, she married the greatest athlete that the world had ever probably ever seen up to yeah. that time. And also married the love of her life. The only man she ever kissed. She once said to me as a little boy, she said, I never kissed a man till I kissed Robert Tyre Jones Jr. And after that, I never saw the need to kiss another. Oh. And she had to watch this, this man, this love of her life, waste away down to 70 pounds by the time he died. Um, we dealt with it, I think, in the same way that anybody does when they're facing that. You don't have much choice. You just do it. Yeah. You just put the next foot in front. I guess we do it as best we can, and we do it kind of like he did. We try to play it one shot at a time, and that's all you can do. Yeah. And and it's funny. I remember when Bub died, my father was on the way back from Atlanta. He uh, Bub had passed into unconsciousness two days before, and Dad had to get back to Nashville just briefly because my mother was ill. And um, he found out that Bub had died uh, by NBC News broadcast on WSM. Oh, Nashville sad. When oh. On top of Eagle Mountain on his way back. When Dad got home, he sat down. And uh, in his easy chair and with the footstool, and I sat on the footstool, and I asked him how he was doing, and Dad had his thousand-yard stare, and he said, it's, it's tough. I said, I said to him, I said, but Dad, I guess we were ready, weren't we? And Dad looked at me, he said, you know, no matter how long you uh, know it's coming, you're never ready when it happens. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I won't say that it was that it, it, there was nothing fun about the experience of watching my grandfather die. 
But I must say, if I was ever faced with circumstances uh, of a similar nature, I would hope I would deal with it um, as well as he did. With the same grace. And as as honestly as he did. Um, Yeah. That that would be if that were to ha- if that were to become my fate, I hope that people would say that same thing about me. Yeah. Well, Herbert Warren, yeah. I think Herbert Warren Wynn made the best statement. He said, you know, uh, in 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 the early years of his life, he stood up with grace and dignity to just about the best life had to offer, which isn't easy. And in the latter half uh, of his life, he stood up with equal grace and dignity to just about the worst. Oh. And I think that's the finest thing we can say about about Bub. And I think to a large extent today, if it was just his illness, we would have never heard of him. If it was just his athletics, he would have been long forgotten. But because of how he played the game, and ultimately how he played the game of life, uh, I think that is why Bobby Jones is uh, every bit, um, in some ways, certainly, every bit is uh, well-regarded now. Uh, as he was, uh, as he was then, possibly more so. It's a good question, Jim. Thank yeah. you. Uh, thank you, um, Doctor Bob. Thank you so much yes. for coming on the show and sharing this story oh, that I think you. we all needed to hear. Thank you so thank much. You. I know, I know, you're seeing a patient here soon. We're going to have you back on the show. I'll send you some questions that maybe we can get back some of those answers out to the yeah. listeners. Thank oh, you so much. It, one of my sure favorite that. interviews. Thank you so much. It thank really you, means God. a lot to have me. Have a great night. All right. right. Thank you again. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. And that was episode 17 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Folks at home, I really hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot. Uh, His passion for his grandfather uh, and the story that lives on today in all of our hearts is an important one to the game of golf. So without further ado, good night. And, uh, Keep them in the fairway.